Israel is escalating its bombardment of targets on the Gaza Strip as Hamas frees two more hostages. It's Tuesday, October 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rufa Shinoy. Coming up, more than 120 Palestinians were said to be killed in those strikes. Israeli officials say those include many Hamas fighters. Meanwhile, Israel is preparing for a ground invasion of Gaza. We need to destroy Hamas completely, and we need to dismantle all terror infrastructure that exists in the Gaza Strip. Also this hour, former Trump attorney Michael Cohen is expected to testify today in Donald Trump's civil fraud trial. Plus... It has been a tremendously bad sell-off. It has been historically one of the worst sell-offs we've ever seen. Why financial experts say a steep sell-off in the U.S. bond market should matter to all Americans, not just investors. Mostly sunny and low 60s today, it's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Hamas militants have released two more hostages from captivity. The two elderly women had been abducted in a kibbutz when Hamas attacked October 7th. Former hostage Yoshif Lifshitz spoke to reporters this morning. Her daughter, Sharon Lifshitz, says the militants are still holding her father. My mom and my dad were separated at the very beginning. And so we do not know for my mom's story what happened to my dad. Lifsha said that her mother was held with about two dozen other hostages and that they were treated well. She said they were held in an underground tunnel network that looked like a spider web. Meanwhile, the Israeli military says it struck about 400 more targets in Gaza overnight. The Israel Defense Forces say these were military targets. The Hamas-run Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza says the Israeli attacks have now killed more than 5,000 people in the enclave. Health authorities say about 2,000 of these are Palestinian children. A ruling is expected today in a lawsuit over Georgia's abortion ban. From member station WABE, Jess Mador reports the ruling comes after months of legal challenges. Georgia's law bans abortion at around six weeks of pregnancy. The state Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case in March. The ACLU, abortion rights groups, and physicians have argued the law violates the state constitution because it originally passed in 2019 when Roe was still in effect. They say the state legislature would need to pass another ban in order for the law to stand. The Georgia Attorney General's office argues that because Roe has since been overturned, the court should not retroactively invalidate the state's law based on a right that no longer exists. For NPR News, I'm Jess Mador in Atlanta. House Republicans will meet today and try to choose their next candidate to be Speaker of the House. Eight GOP lawmakers are in the running. As millions of federal student loan borrowers get back to making payments, one group is hoping to find relief in an unlikely place. NPR's Corey Turner explains. The borrowers are parents and caregivers who took out Parent PLUS loans to help their loved ones pay for college. And for some, the terms can be crushing. They have the highest interest rate of any federal loan and no access to the most flexible repayment plans. The unlikely relief, though, can be found in the same student loan bureaucracy that has so often, in the past, made life harder for borrowers in the form of a loophole in federal policy. Turns out, if borrowers consolidate their loans twice, they can qualify for the most flexible repayment plan of all, one that could slash their monthly payments and keep many older adults out of default. Corey Turner, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. 
from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Investigators have identified the man who died yesterday after falling from a high-rise in downtown Boston. 40-year-old Nicholas Marks of East Weymouth died while washing windows at a building on Summer Street. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration is leading the investigation into how the incident occurred. Massachusetts workers eligible for the state's paid family and medical leave program may not be accessing the benefit. That's according to some lawmakers and advocates who want to raise public awareness and implement changes to the two-year-old program. They'll gather at a hearing at the Statehouse today to discuss the issue. WBUR's Zanenjor and Wemeka reports. More than 200,000 workers have used the state's paid leave program, but more than 3 million are eligible. State Senator Jason Lewis says many workers aren't aware of the program. He's filed legislation that would require employers to give workers more notice of their paid leave rights. We just want to make the state's notification requirements the same as the federal FMLA requirements. And we believe that's an example of one of the ways we'll extend the benefits of this program to even more families in our state. The state says the program has to date paid more than $1.9 billion in benefits. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. State housing officials are not allowing Milton to change its status as a rapid transit community. Those communities are required by law to build more housing units near MBTA stations. Milton officials tell the Boston Business Journal they don't fall into that category because the Mattapan trolley line is the only rail transit in the city. The city is asking for a deadline extension to come into compliance with the law. A court ruling is expected soon on the fate of student-athletes at Bishop Fenwick High School who are hoping to play postseason events. The Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association has barred the Peabody students from all postseason participation. The Boston Globe reports that's after violations related to the baseball team. The school is seeking an end to the ban in time for this year's postseason athletics. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and Public Radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. The Bruins will try to keep their undefeated record alive tonight. They skate with the Blackhawks in Chicago beginning at 8.30. Mostly sunny today. Temperatures will reach the low 60s. Tonight, clear skies and breezy. It'll drop to around 50 degrees. Tomorrow, increasing clouds throughout the day, but warmer. Expect highs in the low 70s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. In a few minutes, we'll hear from veterans of Israel's last ground invasion of Gaza nine years ago. First, though, to Washington, where the U.S. House of Representatives has now been without a speaker for 21 days, leaving Congress virtually paralyzed. Republicans will try again to elect their nominee for speaker today. There are now eight candidates in the race, and each of them made their pitch behind closed doors last night to their fellow Republicans. Some, like Don Bacon of Nebraska, are hoping that this time they can come together. 
I feel optimistic we'll have a speaker. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis joins us now. So, uh, so he's optimistic. Any front runner that could bring them all together? Well, the closest person to that in this race is probably Tom Emmer. He's a Republican from Minnesota, and he's currently the majority whip. That's the number three elected leadership position whose job it is to basically know where the votes are in the conference. Prior to that job, he ran the House Republicans' national campaign operations, so he has the most natural position of strength based off of both his resume and certainly his fundraising record. But establishment Republicans have struggled in this fight. You know, Kevin McCarthy was removed from the job. Majority leader Steve Scalise dropped out before his nomination could even go to the floor. And Emmer isn't considered an ally of former President Trump the way failed nominee Jim Jordan was considered an ally. So he's a front runner with a lot of caveats. Other members I would note in this race are Mike Johnson of Louisiana. He's a lower tier leadership position and he has relationships with, with the party's base and a lot of party activists. Georgia's Austin Scott is making a second run for speaker after initially losing the nomination to Jim Jordan. And Florida's Byron Donalds, he's a junior lawmaker, certainly for the position of speaker, but he's part of the Freedom Caucus, he's popular there, and if he were to win the nomination or win on the floor, he would be the first black speaker of the House. The rest of the candidates in this race are not particularly well known, but with no very clear front runner, obviously upsets are always a possibility in this race. So tell us how this internal vote process works. So each candidate will have uh, a fellow lawmaker give a nominating speech and as many as two additional lawmakers can speak on their behalf. And then they start voting behind closed doors. Republican conference rules say the candidate with the least votes will drop off the subsequent ballot. And they just keep doing this until someone wins a majority of the conference. Right now, there are 221 House Republicans if everyone shows up to vote. So half of that plus one. If no one drops out along the way, this could take eight or nine rounds of voting, so it could be a very long day, but it has been three weeks of very long days for House Republicans. Uh, They could also hold other votes today. They've used these secret ballots to get temperature checks on whether lawmakers would vote for a nominee on the floor, even if a nominee should drop out of the race, which was ultimately what the conference voted about Jim Jordan just last week, which has led them here. So as we know, being a nominee is one thing. Winning over a majority of the House in a floor vote is quite another. Uh, how confident are Republicans that they can wrap this thing up? It's certainly not a sure bet. You know, if Republicans can pick their nominee today, they could go to the floor pretty quickly and see where the votes stand. They could go as early as today, but more likely tomorrow. There is this school of thought, and it might be overly optimistic, that enough Republicans are so exhausted by this public drama, they're just ready to unite behind anyone and get on with governing. But the party's divided in pretty critical ways over what exactly their governing agenda should be right now. The immediate work facing the Republican majority is legislation that almost certainly will need Democratic support to keep the government open, to pass spending bills, and to pass foreign aid to Israel and Ukraine. And it's really hard to win what is essentially a party purity challenge and yet have the very first test of that person be figuring out how many Democrats the speaker will need to get its work done. And Sue, what if Republicans are not able to elect a speaker again this week? I mean, how much urgency is there for them to figure it out? Well, Congress doesn't always act until there's a hard deadline. And frankly, the next hard deadline is November 17th. That's when the current stopgap spending bill runs out and the government would shut down. Now, House Republicans obviously want to get this done more quickly than that because they realize this is politically very bad for the party. But it's unclear what's possible at this point. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell told Face the Nation over the weekend he hopes the speaker drama is resolved soon and said it's clearly a problem when Congress can't function. Well, NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Susan, thanks. You're welcome.
The U.N. says more than 5,000 people have been killed in the Gaza Strip during Israel's air campaign since October 7th, when Hamas fighters attacked southern Israel. And now Israeli ground troops have been massing at the border in anticipation of a ground invasion. The last major boots-on-the-ground Israeli military action in Gaza took place more than nine years ago. NPR's Ruth Sherlock spoke with Israeli veterans of that military action and heard their stories. The whole night sky is just lighting up the whole night before you go in. And you know that everyone, those are all your guys, you know, like that's your team. Benzie Sanders is describing the Israeli airstrikes and artillery that pummeled Gaza to pave the way for the last ground invasion in 2014. He remembers clearly the night his unit was told to advance inside the Gaza Strip. You're carrying more weight than you could have ever carried in your life. You're walking on very fine sand. And, uh, you know, you're just trying to stay alert and just there's a lot of tension. I remember like when we were going in, there was like a whole lot of questions running through my head. Sam Gosling was on the same mission. Who's going to be okay? How are people going to react? Uh, Are there going to be guys that don't come out from the situation with us? The objective then was to destroy tunnels built by Hamas close to the border with Israel. Aviv Heimsen, a soldier with the paratrooper corps, remembers searching house by house. We had to get in, barricade all the doors and windows, uh, keep watch. It was mainly important not to make noise or lights because uh, there were missile uh, teams out there looking for us. In the darkness at night, Heimsen and his team would quietly listen on the radio to the eulogies read out at funerals of soldiers who died in the fighting around them. Gosling, who was with a counter-terrorism unit, was keeping watch out from a home on the edge of the territory the soldiers controlled. He recalls the night his unit got a rare hot meal to mark the start of the Sabbath. Someone downstairs said Kiddush, like the prayer on uh, wine, he was saying Friday night, and almost as he, he finished saying the Kiddush, that was when uh, that first rocket struck. His commanding officer was killed instantly beside him. Two more rockets hit the floor below where there were other soldiers. I ended up crawling to the door to, to like go down the stairs to check on the second attack. And, and I just like remember my arms being burned from all the shrapnel on the ground that had exploded because obviously still quite hot. He started giving first aid until he and the other wounded could be evacuated. Elsewhere in Gaza, Bensi Sanders was coming to terms with the realities of war. He took a few pieces of paper from the house he was occupying and scribbled some thoughts with the red marker intended for writing on maps. I don't look at them like every day, but uh, every now and then I look at them. He reads aloud for us from one of the notes he wrote a week in. People have started to do the math, decide whether this is all worth it or not, something around 35 soldiers to stop rockets and tunnels. And then I write the name of one of my friends, who's, who's, who's he lost a, a close friend from Golani. I think it could be worth it. It's not a question of matter to me, as long as we decisively eliminate the threat. And I I haven't read this in a long time, actually. These days, Sanders thinks very differently about the threat. This is like the lie that they told us, that we were decisively, every time, decisively. But in order to decisively do it, there is no military option to decisively defeat Hamas. It feels like you're wrestling with your own thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, most of the time I wasn't reflecting and wrestling, but yeah, the beginning of it, maybe. Now he's a member of Breaking the Silence, a group that opposes the Israeli occupation and takes the testimony of veterans. Sanders says in those days in Gaza in 2014, men in his unit found a Palestinian family that hadn't fled. 
They arrested all of the men and they sent them back to Israel for interrogation. He says soldiers gave the women and children food and water. A few days later, though, Sanders' unit was ordered to pull back and the Israeli Air Force bombed the neighborhood. Sanders noticed one soldier looked devastated. I asked him, like, what's the matter? And he goes, um, they, just, they just killed that family that we, that we met, that, that, was, that was there, you know. And, and I go, no, there's no way. They, know, they, they knew exactly where they were. They knew that they were innocents. They were among more than 2,200 Palestinians, mostly civilians, who died during that conflict. As troops are lined up on the border again today, the Palestinians say that more than twice that number have already died in Israeli airstrikes, and a ground invasion this time may be much more sweeping. Retired Brigadier General Amir Avivi is part of a hawkish group of former military commanders. It's a huge mission. Militarily, it means only one thing, going in, taking over the whole Gaza Strip and, and, and spending months dismantling all their capabilities, the leadership, the terrorists, the tunnels, the rockets, the headquarters, you name it. Back on the border with Gaza, Heimsen, the paratrooper, is training to go back in. We're drilling the real thing, training right now. He says he and others who served in 2014 are ready to fight again after seeing how Hamas killed civilians in southern Israel by the hundreds. Whoever had hard combat in this war was traumatized and they have friends like this and they'll be happy to return too because they know what, it's, what it means to protect our home. And what about Gazans who will lose their homes and their loved ones? I ask all of the soldiers we speak with this question and they almost all say, of course, that part is hard. Gosling says he's been talking with his sister and other friends who've been called up to serve about how to compartmentalise. The best advice that I could give them is remembering why they're doing it. As a soldier, he says, the job is to follow orders and achieve your mission. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, what to expect today as former Trump attorney and fixer Michael Cohen testifies against Donald Trump at Trump's civil fraud trial in New York. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And ThoughtForms Custom Builders committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act so humans and nature can thrive for generations. Thoughtforms-corp.com and mitsloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. A beloved piece of playground equipment turns 100 years old. We go to Winnetka, Illinois to pay tribute. You can't see it from the street. You'd have to know it was here and walk in through our little back gate. So it's a little bit of a hidden treasure. I'm looking at the 100-year-old jungle gym. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. 
A high near 61 today under mostly sunny skies. It stays mostly clear tonight and temperatures fall to the low 50s. We warm up to a high near 72 tomorrow and clouds will move in throughout the day. Right now it's 43 degrees in Boston, sorry. Every time a mass shooting occurs in America, the questions begin, who did it and why can't we make it stop? The Gun Machine podcast from WBUR explores guns, government, and the Massachusetts roots of guns in America. Find The Gun Machine on your podcast app. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morgan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. In her new stand-up special, comedian Zainab Johnson jokes about growing up in a big Muslim family with 12 siblings. And you know, in a house of 15 people, a journal ain't safe. (laughs) Oh, they were so disrespectful. They read my journal, made notes, corrected my grammar. was right in back. Like, you've been talking about him for two years. Let it go. Johnson's hijabs off begin streaming today on Prime Video. She also has a part in the third season of the sci-fi comedy Upload. NPR's Elizabeth Blair talked to Johnson about how she mines her life experiences, including traumatic ones, for her comedy. For someone so funny, Zainab Johnson is pretty serious. She's been doing stand-up for about 13 years, but writing jokes was not her first career choice. I studied math and education. I thought I would be a teacher. In another life, maybe I would have been a lawyer. I'm an amazing debater, you know. But the first time I did stand-up comedy, it felt very different than anything I had ever done. It felt like this was already a part of me. In her stand-up, Johnson is known for talking about what it's like to be a black Muslim in America, starting with her name. So I'm not naive, right? I know that I'm not going to go to, like, the Grand Canyon or Universal Studios, souvenir shop. I know I'm not going to see Zainab, like, on a keychain, right? But then she went to the Middle East. Zainab's everywhere. Everywhere. I could not walk into a souvenir shop without seeing Zainab on everything. On mugs, on rugs, on keychains. I've got a pair of fake Gucci sneakers, Zainab written with them. <laughs> it was amazing. A girl who sold me the Zainab merch, her name was Zainab. It was fantastic. You know, I'm feeling like a bad bee letting the Zainabs rain on me. I see this sad white woman in the corner looking for her name. I'm like, I know that look. So I tried to help her. I said, dang, Jessica, this ain't your scene. There's no one else like her in stand-up. 
Paige Hurwitz and her producing partner Wanda Sykes first met Zainab Johnson about 10 years ago when they cast her in the NBC TV series Last Comic Standing. At the time, she had a completely shaved head, which you don't see very often with women in comedy. I had a shaved head for seven years. That was great. I was never late anywhere. Um... She can be silly and absurd, but she can also just give you a really good gut punch with a line, you know, that's so poignant and substantive. And that's the sweet spot. Women were like, wow, you must feel so free, so spiritually lifted. I was like, it was Tuesday. I didn't feel like doing my hair, so I shaved it off. That mix of silly and serious seems to come naturally for Johnson, but she says her family didn't think so. I was talking to my mom a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, was I funny as a kid? And she was like, no. (laughs) One of my first TV appearances, my mom and some of my siblings, they drove down to Atlanta, Georgia to come to the taping of like a seven-minute stand-up set. And one of my younger brothers, he said, I was so scared when you walked out. He was like, it was the most scared I had ever been in my life. My stomach was hurting. And I was like, did something happen? He was like, I was scared for you. And I was like, why? He was like, because I don't ever remember you being funny. (laughs) (laughs) Johnson turns some not-so-funny topics into jokes in her new special, including a traumatic personal experience from her childhood. She sets the story up by talking about how her parents tried to keep her safe from the rough neighborhoods near their home. My father used to say, Zainab, make a beeline home. Beeline home. Now, I didn't know what that meant. So I'm I'm walking in the beat. One day, when she was seven, she wound up in a dangerous situation. Without giving too much away, she managed to escape. Took off straight down 25 flights of concrete steps. Didn't fall once. Yeah. Made it so I couldn't really watch horror movies growing up, because every time the girl fell, I'm like, well, that don't need to happen. (laughs) My seven-year-old legs made it. You a cheerleader, right? (laughs) You got this. Johnson never told her parents what happened to her that day. She says for years it was out of the question that she would share it on stage. I felt very protected by my parents, but there was a moment there where I felt like I couldn't. I was so protected that I was scared to share that their protection hadn't worked in that moment, you know? At a friend's urging, she started putting the story in her act. But figuring out how to tell it was a process. It was really hard to navigate, but because it was hard, it was so much fun for me. And I found every time I told the story, I felt a little better. For Zainab Johnson, that's part of the power of comedy, to allow people to both process and bring levity to painful experiences. She says her next project is developing a TV show based on her life, growing up in Harlem with her parents and 12 brothers and sisters. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. It was a Texas-sized Game 7 in the American League Championship Series last night as the Rangers beat the defending champion Astros 11-4. As Jack Williams from Houston Public Radio reports, the series wasn't friendly to the home team. The series had in-state rivalry written all over it from the first pitch. Houston and Arlington are only about 240 miles apart, and in this series, the away team ruled. The Rangers won all four games in Houston. Manager Bruce Bochy led the San Francisco Giants to three World Series wins before he retired in 2019. 
Texas lured him back this season. I was sitting at the house for three years and think here I am going to the World Series. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's special, but it's more about them and trying to find a way to get a ring for those guys. Astros manager Dusty Baker says although this is tough, it's been a good run. You know, we're down, but we're not out. And every team damn near in baseball would trade to have the last four years that we've had. The Rangers have been to the World Series twice, losing both. These fans are hoping that changes. Astros are tough, so you always got to know that they have a chance to come back, but Rangers had it in control after the first inning. I mean, all these Astros fans are mad. I, mean, I can't blame them. I've been there before, but hey, on to the next one, man. World Series. The Rangers will play the winner of tonight's Game 7 between the Philadelphia Phillies and Arizona Diamondbacks. Game 1 of the World Series is set for Friday. For NPR News, I'm Jack Williams in Houston. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBOR's Morning Edition. The host of a new NPR special series called Body Electric talks about how technology is affecting our posture. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Hamas has released two more hostages, both women, taken during the militants' attack in southern Israel on October 7th. One is 85 years old, the other 79. Their release was brokered by Egypt and Qatar. Officials say their husbands are still being held. On a visit to Israel, French President Emmanuel Macron called on Hamas to release all hostages. The first objective we should have today is the release of all hostages, without any distinction. Because this is an awful crime to play with these lives of children, adults, all people, civilians and soldiers. Israeli officials say about 220 people are still being held by Hamas, including some Americans. The Biden administration says 10 Americans are still unaccounted for. State police in Louisiana say seven people were killed in yesterday's chain reaction crash and heavy fog and smoke from fires. It happened on Interstate 55, west of New Orleans. Police Sergeant Kate Stiegel says some vehicles caught fire in the pileup. Over 150 vehicles involved. It spans about a mile's distance and is broken down into several other crashes. Those crashes involved a tanker truck hauling hazardous liquid. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy.
The MBTA Board of Directors is set to meet today for the first time since officials revealed that most of the Green Line extension is in need of repairs. T officials say that's because much of the track was built with its rails too close together. A large portion of the line was also shut down for over six hours last week because of electrical problems. T General Manager Phil Ang is expected to give the board an update on efforts to fix the Green Line extension during today's meeting. The Boston City Council is set to consider changes tomorrow to an ordinance to remove tents from the area known as Mass and Cass. The plan by Mayor Michelle Wu would give police the authority to remove those encampments with proper notice. But Councilor Ricardo Arroyo is proposing amendments to remove a $25 penalty for people who refuse tent removal. He also wants greater support from public health professionals. A new tree infection called beech leaf disease is quickly spreading across Massachusetts. In the past three years, the disease has affected over 90 communities in the state. Right now, there are no treatments to stop the disease, but as WBUR's Parlamora reports, new research is offering some hope. Beech leaf disease is caused by a microscopic nematode that may be spread by birds, insects, and wind. It can kill the tree in a few years. The state hasn't approved any treatments yet, but researchers are studying different efforts to try to save the trees. One that has shown promising results is applying a chemical typically used as a fertilizer. Robert Mara is a forest pathologist with the state of Connecticut. In very simple terms, it is believed that it stimulates the plant's defenses. He says researchers in Ohio have strong evidence it helps trees live and thrive with infection, but results haven't been published yet. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo and Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for Homes and Offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. The Bruins remain on the road. They face off against the Chicago Blackhawks tonight. Pup drops at 8.30. Mostly sunny today. Temperatures will rise to the low 60s. Those fall to around 50 tonight and skies stay mostly clear. Highs in the low 70s tomorrow and it'll grow partly overcast. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In February 2019, Donald Trump's former fixer testified before the House Oversight Committee. Mr. Trump is a cheat. Michael Cohen had already pleaded guilty to lying to a bank and lying to Congress, but he still had a few things to get off his chest. It was my experience that Mr. Trump inflated his total assets when it served his purposes, such as trying to be listed amongst the wealthiest people in Forbes and deflated his assets to reduce his real estate taxes. 
Not long after that, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, said she was opening an investigation based on Cohen's testimony. Today, more than four years later, Michael Cohen will testify in the $250 million civil case that James ultimately filed. Joining us to talk about the path to Cohen's testimony today is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Good morning. Good morning. So, Andrea, I'm just going to start by asking you to remind us, what was Michael Cohen to Donald Trump? When Michael Cohen was vice president of the Trump Organization, his job was to solve any problems Trump had, often in very aggressive ways. And as part of this, he would sometimes threaten contractors, associates, and and even reporters. Here's some tape of Cohen challenging former NPR reporter Tim Mack. So I'm warning you, tread very lightly, because what I'm going to do to you is going to be disgusting. After Trump was elected, Trump and Cohen had a falling out over the Mueller investigation. Cohen pleaded guilty and was sentenced to years in prison. At his sentencing, Cohen said, quote, I am committed to proving my integrity and ensuring that history will not remember me as the villain in this story. And that is pretty much what he's been doing in a book, a podcast, TV appearances, and with what he's expected to say today in court. Now, as I understand it, Trump's defense has been arguing that Cohen is not to be believed. And he has been convicted of felonies, as you just told us, including lying to banks and to Congress. So what can Cohen say today? A lot. Cohen was very, very close to Donald Trump when he worked for him and witnessed many of the transactions at the heart of the New York Attorney General's case. In the first three weeks of the trial, witness after witness has presented bits of evidence that Trump and his employees repeatedly lied about the value of their assets. Cohen is expected to tie that all together to show the through line of all this lying was to cheat the system. And yes, Cohen's a convicted liar, which Trump's team has leaned into. But as one former prosecutor told me, the way to handle that is to say, we didn't choose Mr. Cohen. Mr. Trump did. Now, the judge in this case has already found Trump and other defendants that they committed persistent fraud. So so help me understand, what what are the stakes of Cohen's testimony? Before the trial even began, Judge Arthur and Gore unrolled, Trump had to start the process of selling his business, and that's happening. But what's still at issue is whether Trump conspired to commit fraud and how much money he'll have to pay the state. The AG wants $250 million. Cohen, by being so close to it all, and unlike many witnesses who still work for Trump, will presumably be more willing to be candid, can offer evidence of conspiracy, intent, and the specific value of Trump's lies. And Andrew, as briefly as you can, Trump was already fined $5,000 for violating a gag order. What happens now? The judge said Trump couldn't attack his clerk, but the AG's office learned a derogatory post about her was still up on Trump's campaign website. Trump's lawyers said it was inadvertent. The judge said if it happened again, Trump could go to jail or face a big fine. All right. Thanks so much. That's NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Andrea, thank you. Thank you. With Florida restricting how black history can be taught, some churches are stepping in with their own lessons. Here's WMFE's Danielle Pryor. It's 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night, and Pastor Sharon Riley of Agape Perfecting Praise and Worship Center in Orlando would usually be preparing to lead Bible study. Today, she's getting her church ready for their first-ever African-American History Masterclass. So if you will take a moment and just bow your heads with me. Father, we just thank you for your grace. It is still so amazing. There are about 100 parishioners packed into the pews, including a group of middle school boys. Riley says these classes are in direct response to Florida's current political climate, where restrictions have been placed on teaching history. 
because we have families who have students who are registered in our public school system, we know that there are certain pieces of information relevant to our history that are not going to be taught. AP African American history has been banned in the state, and teachers are no longer allowed to talk about anything that causes discomfort or guilt for a child. In July, Florida approved new African American history standards that teach kids, quote, slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Tonight's class is taught by LaVon Bracey. She's with Faith in Florida, the group that created the history toolkit for churches. 246 years of our ancestors being beaten, being raped, being degraded in America. 246 years. This toolkit is not a curriculum, but a guide with recommended books, documentaries to watch, and articles to read. It covers the history of the transatlantic slave trade through the civil rights movement up to the killing of George Floyd. Bracey says black churches need to make sure children get the full picture. So we want the true history of America to be known. That can only be done if you tell the truth about what has happened and learn from that so that it will not be repeated again. The course culminates with a trip to Alabama in the spring. They'll visit some of the most important sites of the civil rights movement. Eric Sma is the chair of philosophy at Rollins College near Orlando. He thinks these efforts are a great idea. And so now it's up to us to make sure that we stay engaged, we stay knowledgeable, we stay committed to the fight for civil liberties because those who will want to constrain your civil liberties will stay committed on the opposite side. Back at Agape, Bracey wraps up her lesson by giving out tiny vials filled with soil she collected at various sites across Africa. I want the kids to take this soil with them. And I want every time that you have a very difficult thing to take this soil out and said, my ancestors made it. They walked on this soil and I can make it too. For parishioner Angela Borders, tonight's lesson was an inspiration. Education is your power source to do greater things. Black churches have long played a large role in fighting for civil rights. Pastor Riley says she's now devoting one Wednesday every month to teaching black history. Well, the church is going to always be an educational institution, period. We teach people how to live their lives, how to raise their families, how to plan for their future. We teach. That's what we do. Faith in Florida says more than 300 churches across Florida and the South have signed up to teach their toolkit. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, Israel is stepping up its strikes on Gaza. Meanwhile, the Red Cross says it facilitated the release of two elderly Israeli women by Hamas. More sun than clouds today in the low 60s. Tonight, low 50s with clear skies. Clouds move in throughout the day tomorrow. We'll also have a warm-up to the low 70s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. 
career opportunities at vrtx.com. A new electric vehicle battery manufacturing facility is now open in Methuen. Once the facility is fully up and running, it's expected to be the largest producer in the country of next-generation batteries known as solid-state batteries. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. Solid-state batteries have long been dubbed the holy grail of EV battery technology. Compared to traditional lithium-ion batteries, they're smaller, weigh less, and pack a bigger punch, meaning you can drive farther on one charge. Alex Yu is a co-founder of Factorial Energy. He says two things set his company apart from others pursuing these batteries, a proprietary technology and a focus on sustainability. We're trying to develop a more environmentally and sustainable materials that rely less on precious metal or rare earth metals. Factorial expects the facility to be fully up and running in 2025. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Plastic manufacturer St. Gobain plans to expand its Worcester operations. The company tells the Worcester Business Journal it's looking for approval to build a new warehouse. The expansion comes after the company announced in August that it would be closing its Merrimack, New Hampshire plant. A nonprofit volunteer arts organization in Nashua, New Hampshire, is shutting down. City Arts Nashua plans to shut down operations at the end of the year after 20 years of service. The group hasn't explained why they're closing. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including schools, with their accounting needs more at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Everywhere we go, there's a common sight. People are hunched over their phones or slumped in their chair, typing away at a laptop. Maybe this is you. In fact, I'm pretty much sure it's you because it's me and it's everyone else. TED Radio Hour host Manoush Zamarodi has been joining us every week to talk about her special NPR series, Body Electric, which looks at the relationship between our technology and our health. And today, she's here to talk about what our bad posture from all that sitting, typing, and tapping is really doing to us. Manoush, tell us what you found. Okay, so A, yes, slouching and hunching will give you tight muscles, maybe a lower back ache. But also, the position that we put our bodies in when we're on our devices can help explain why we often feel so stressed out and drained at the end of the day. I talked to Peter Strick, a professor of neurobiology at the University of Pittsburgh Brain Institute. And a few years back, he was feeling very stressed out, and his kids suggested that he do yoga or Pilates to relieve some of his stress. And here's what he thought about that idea. I thought they were nuts. I didn't think that there was any really objective data that suggested that yoga, Pilates, have any real impact on stress. 
actually, A, Peter is a leading expert on the relationship between the brain and movement. So a quick anatomy lesson, when we get stressed, the brain sends signals to the adrenal glands to release adrenaline. So the adrenal glands sit on top of your kidneys, which if you put your hands around your waist, they're kind of there in in your back, in your midsection. And until recently, scientists didn't think that the muscles around there, our core muscles, were involved with how the brain and these organs communicate. But Peter also happens to be the inventor of a method that can trace the signals that get sent between our brain and our muscles. And he discovered that those core muscles and the brain and the adrenal glands were all talking to each other. The muscles that control posture, our core muscles, have an impact on an organ that is involved in stress. That was sort of a wake-up call for me, that I better do something about working on my core. You know how many times when I've been sitting up straight during our conversation, I've been doing it like five or six times already. <laughs> and I want to check in on how the study you're doing with listeners in Columbia University uh, Medical Center is going. So tell us about that. Yeah, quick reminder, in the lab, uh, researchers at Columbia have found that if you mostly sit all day, doing regular five-minute movement breaks every half hour is the best way to keep that lifestyle from causing all kinds of health problems. But we wanted to find out, are all those interruptions even possible in our screen-filled lives? Over 20,000 NPR listeners signed up to give it a try, and here's how some of them have told us it's going. On the days when I got up and walked around, I had pretty consistent energy throughout the day. On the days when I didn't get up and walk around, I could feel my brain tightening, my anxiety increasing. I wish it was easier to take care of my body without then simultaneously being late to respond to an email. How can I work in five minutes of walking while driving? I truly believe that this change of a lifestyle is hopefully a game changer for me. I could feel the stress in their voices. Though. I'm glad you're doing this. Everything you're doing, Manoush. Oh, thanks. That's Manoush Zamarodi, host of NPR's TED Radio Hour and also a special series, Body Electric. To hear more about what our technology is doing to our posture and other parts of our bodies, just go to the TED Radio Hour podcast feed or npr.org slash bodyelectric. This is NPR News. Coming up at 825 on WBUR's Morning Edition, how a little understood loophole in federal student loan rules could make a big difference for parents who took out loans to pay for their children's college. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com and Circle Furniture, offering an upholstery event through October. You can work with interior designers to create a new, healthy look for your home. CircleFurniture.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Our names reveal so much of ourselves, cultural roots, tradition, even power. So learning to pronounce a name correctly matters. Ofa yeah. Kibaha Tupo Malohi. Yep, just like that. And that's it's very. It's beautiful. actually very phonetic. It is, and it's, it's very melodic. The new children's book, Say My Name, next time here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The International Committee of the Red Cross has negotiated the release of two more hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza. 
House Republicans are set to vote again today on nominees for Speaker of the House. And representatives from Hollywood Studios and members of the SAG-AFTRA union are set to resume negotiations on a new contract today after a two-week pause. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handlin Haydn Society, presenting Luke's Leeds Beethoven with popular guest conductor Václav Luke's this weekend. HandlinHeiden.org. Low 60s and mostly sunny today. Skies stay mostly clear tonight as it falls to around 50. Low 70s tomorrow. It'll gradually grow mostly cloudy. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Turkey sits at the crossroads of Europe and Asia, a location that is both culturally rich and strategically important. The founder of the modern Republic of Turkey was Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. And after he became its first president in 1923, he came to define a national identity while also trying to rid his country of everything that did not fit that vision. For the 100th anniversary of Turkey's independence this coming Sunday, the NPR History podcast through line looks back at Ataturk's complex legacy. Here are Rund Abdel Fattah and Ramtin Arablui. Before he became Ataturk, Mustafa Kemal was born into a world that doesn't exist anymore, the Ottoman Empire. For centuries, it was a powerful global player that spanned three continents. But by the late 19th century, a mood of discontent was spreading, which gave rise to a new movement determined to reform the empire. The reformers became known as the Young Turks. They staged a revolt and took power. Mustafa Kemal joined them. Vive la patrie, vive la nation, vive la liberté. But before long, their progressive idealism would be put to the test. Armenians had been living in a part of the Ottoman Empire called Anatolia long before the empire existed. And some Armenians believed it was time they carve out a nation for themselves there. The young Turk government was not about to let those ideas grow. So they decide to eliminate the threat of Armenians before it becomes a threat. It involves three processes. Outright massacre, kidnapping. And the third one is the forcible Islamization of Armenians. This is Lerna Ekmekcioglu. She's the author of the book Recovering Armenia, The Limits of Belonging in Post-Genocide Turkey. I am an Armenian from Turkey. And I am a survivor of descendants of the Armenian Genocide. The Armenian Genocide was an ethnic cleansing campaign that happened during World War I. It left as many as 1.2 million Armenians dead and countless more were displaced. Growing up in Turkey, Lerna heard stories about it in hush whispers. We couldn't speak about what had happened publicly. To this day, the Turkish government contests the use of the word genocide. They argue that this was a political uprising during a chaotic period when disease and famine were also rampant and that all sides perpetrated violence. Okay, you might be wondering, where does Mustafa Kemal fit into all of this? Remember, he was a part of the Young Turk movement, the same people who had led the genocide against the Armenians. But Kemal personally had been stationed far away fighting in World War I, leaving his reputation relatively untainted. And in spite of the Ottoman Empire's defeat, Kemal emerged as a war hero, which is how the prevailing Western powers saw him. 
When he said, I'm going to liberate Turkey, people did not say, oh, who are you to do this? That's Soner Chopdai. He's the director of the Turkish Research Program at the Washington Institute. The people lined up behind him and said, oh, yeah, this guy can do it because he had already established himself as a great general. On October 29, 1923, the Republic of Turkey was formed, with Mustafa Kemal as its leader. And Turkey would be a completely new nation. Almost like in the old days when you had to reset a computer, you did Control-Alt-Delete. I think Ataturk did the Turkish version of Control-Alt-Delete. He basically like hard-booted the Ottoman Empire in 1923. He's like, I'm just going to delete the old software. It's not working. I'm going to bring a new software, put it into the computer, and, and start a country from scratch. And he believed the first step to doing that was to literally fast-forward time. So one night, Turkey citizens go to bed. It's 13-something. Uh, they wake up, it's 1926. Someone has just forwarded time for them by 600 years. Up to this point, Turkey, like the rest of the Muslim world, had used what's known as the Hijri calendar to track time. The Hijri calendar is around 600 years behind the European Gregorian calendar, which sets year one as the birth of Jesus. The next thing he went after was language. He decided to change Turkey's alphabet. He said, look, we can't be a country of Europe if we are writing Turkish in the Arabic script. We have to switch to a Latin-based script. So overnight, he forces newspapers, book publishers, and even libraries to switch to a totally new alphabet. And in one generation, people won't be able to read letters written by their grandparents or their parents. The reforms were swift, they were dramatic, and they left little room for dissent. Not everyone was happy under Ataturk, you know. People who wanted to be conservative and wear religion on their sleeve felt that this was not their country. And of course, if they just tried to rise up, they were taken to courts and jailed and uh, punished. While Armenians had created an uneasy peace for themselves in the new nation, ethnic Kurds had not. Mustafa Kemal waged bloody campaigns against Kurdish nationalists, and elements of that conflict continue to this day. Mustafa Kemal viewed the world in black and white. You either had power or you didn't. You were either fully Turkish or you weren't. And what that meant was that there had to be a certain homogeneity, a certain conformity that everyone within this new nation opted into. In 1934, he passed a law mandating that every citizen adopt a Turkish last name. And he officially changed his own surname to Ataturk, father of the Turks. Kemal understood the power of narrative in papering over the divisions. He needed to control the story and his place in it. And 100 years later, his presence still looms large. Every year, millions of people visit his tomb. The name of Ghazi Mustafa Kemal will forever be inscribed indelibly upon the rolls of history. Ramtin Arablui and Rund Abdel Fattah are the hosts of NPR's Throughline. You can listen to more of their story wherever you get your podcasts. This story from Throughline comes from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents Family Favorite Award, educating toddler to grade eight. Open house November 5th. More at Welland.org. Education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel steps up its attacks on targets in Gaza as anticipation of a ground invasion grows and Hamas releases two elderly hostages. It's Tuesday, October 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. House remains in chaos ahead of another planned vote for speaker today. Oklahoma Congressman Kevin Hearn says his experience leading the Republican Study Committee qualifies him for the job. We have 80 percent of the conference, which is the House Freedom Caucus, all the way to problem solvers and everybody in between. And we work on policy that we all agree on. Also this hour, a new report says many of the products marketed as toddler milks or formulas are often not as healthy as they claim to be. And the growing threat to Massachusetts forests from beech leaf disease. Where we first identified the disease, we're seeing a significant amount of decline and occasional occurrences of tree death. Mostly sunny and low 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman, an elderly woman taken hostage by Hamas, says she went through a nightmare and is relieved to be free. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports her release comes as the Israeli military continues to attack Hamas positions in Gaza. 85-year-old Yochaved Lifshitz spoke outside the Tel Aviv hospital where she's being treated. She said she was taken on a motorcycle as they raced away and was hit with a wooden pole. Her watch and jewelry were stolen. After a long walk through underground tunnels, she said they came to a hall where they were guarded. She said it seemed like Hamas, quote, prepared for this for a long time. The Hamas-run Ministry of Health in Gaza says nearly 5,800 people have been killed thus far, including more than 2,300 children. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. French President Emmanuel Macron is visiting Israel. He met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today, who warns Israel's fight against Hamas is a battle with which the West must also engage. The test for the West and for civilization is Hamas. If Hamas emerges victorious, we will all lose. Europe will be endangered. Everyone will be endangered. Civilization will be endangered. Macron expressed solidarity with Israel. This fight against terrorism is obviously a matter of existence for Israel, but it's a matter of existence for all of us. Macron is calling on the international coalition fighting ISIS to also include fighting Hamas. Very limited amounts of relief aid are entering Gaza. Nearly 60 trucks with water, food and medicine have gotten into the enclave in the past few days. Many have been delayed in Egypt, waiting for permission to cross. Israel continues to maintain its blockade of Gaza, It means a cutoff of fuel needed to power water pumps and hospitals. 
House Republicans will meet behind closed doors today to try again to nominate a speaker. NPR Susan Davis reports there are now eight candidates in the race. Majority Whip Tom Emmer enters the race with the strongest initial position to win. The Minnesota representative is the number three elected Republican in leadership and prior to that ran the House Republicans campaign operation when the party won the majority in the 2022 midterms. But current leaders have struggled in this speaker fight and Emmer is not as close of an ally to former President Donald Trump as some of his colleagues would like. Also running, Mike Johnson of Louisiana. He's also in leadership and has close ties with party base activists. Georgia's Austin Scott is making a second run for the job. And Florida's Byron Donalds. Donalds is a junior lawmaker, but part of the Freedom Caucus and would be the first black speaker if elected. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. Former President Donald Trump is expected to return to his civil fraud trial in New York today. A key witness is his former lawyer, Michael Cohen. Trump's denied allegations that he wrongly inflated the value of some of his properties. Cohen is expected to testify against him. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The window washer who died after falling from a high-rise in downtown Boston yesterday is being identified as a 40-year-old man from East Weymouth. Investigators say Nicholas Marks fell several stories while working on a building on Summer Street yesterday morning. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration is investigating the incident. The Massachusetts shelter system is expected to hit capacity next week as the number of migrants seeking help with housing continues to grow. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, Governor Maura Healy is pleading for federal support. Governor Healy has capped the shelter system, saying the state doesn't have the space, money and staff to accommodate more than 7,500 families. Those who arrive after the cap is reached will be placed on a wait list. Healy says the federal government should set up and fund a congregate facility for families who are waiting. Massachusetts has done its job, and so many have come together to make that possible. We need help from the federal government. Some housing advocates argue the state should create its own congregate facility. The legislature has not acted on Healy's request for more money for the shelter system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. State lawmakers are considering legislation to create a 10-year pilot program for supervised consumption sites. Those are facilities that allow people using their own drugs to do so with clean needles while supervised by medical staff. They're currently illegal under federal law. Somerville Mayor Katyana Ballantyne testified on Beacon Hill yesterday about plans to open one of the sites in her city. There are serious legal risks to opening an overdose prevention center in Massachusetts. Somerville, as a municipality, is willing to take on those risks, but those operating the sites and clients seeking treatment face potential criminal prosecution. New York City opened two overdose prevention centers in 2021. Rhode Island expects to open its own program early next year. The Boston City Council plans to take up a proposal to rename Faneuil Hall. The hall is named after an 18th century businessman who participated in the buying and selling of enslaved people. Those in favor of renaming it say it would put the city's history in proper perspective. If the council votes in favor of the change, the proposal would need to be approved by the Public Facilities Commission. That group is responsible for name changes to public sites. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com And MIT Museum, 
featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. It's another road game tonight for the Bruins. The team will skate with the Chicago Blackhawks beginning at 8.30. Mostly sunny today. Temperatures will reach the low 60s. Tonight, clear skies and breezy. It'll drop to around 50 degrees. Tomorrow, increasing clouds throughout the day, but warmer. Expect highs in the low 70s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Some much-needed good news this morning out of the Israel-Gaza conflict. Two elderly women abducted by the militant group Hamas in the cross-border attack on Israel nearly two weeks ago were released. They are 85-year-old Yokebed Lifshitz and 79-year-old Nurit Cooper. Jackie Northam is in Jerusalem. Jackie, tell us uh, what you know about the hostages that were released. Well, the release was brokered by Egypt and Qatar after, you know, long negotiations. And one of the women, the 85-year-old Yokeved Lifshitz, described her ordeal afterwards at a Tel Aviv hospital. Here she is speaking. It was very, very difficult and unpleasant. In the memory, I see the images. But Lifshitz said she went through what she called a nightmare that she couldn't have imagined after Hamas militants grabbed her during the attack on the kibbutz. They put her on a motorcycle and took off over fields. Her legs were tied and she said she was hit with a wooden pole. Uh, Lifshitz says they ended up in one of these Hamas underground tunnels and they walked for two or three hours through this labyrinth of tunnels before they met up with other hostages. And Considering the circumstances, Lifshitz was almost charitable about her captives. She said the captors, pardon me. She said they ate meals together. They didn't talk about politics. They were visited every day by a doctor and brought medications if needed until they were released. Um, and interestingly, there's a video of the release of the two women. And in it, Lifshitz takes the hand of a Hamas militant and says, Shalom, peace. But you know, a these are two people who have been released. We can't forget that there are about 220 other hostages, Israelis, but other foreign nationals, including 10 Americans that are still being held. And the Biden administration says it's working around the clock to get Americans out of Gaza. Wow, what a story from her. I'm glad to know that, yeah. she, that she got out okay, uh, well, as okay mm-hmm. as possible. Um, three yeah. weeks into this conflict now, um, and from the very beginning, Israel has said that they want to root out, uproot Hamas from Gaza. Hasn't happened yet, probably can't happen unless they, they go walk in. Um, any mm-hmm. sign that that might happen soon? Well, Israel's military seems to be poised to go in. You know, it's got troops and tanks along the border with Gaza, but nothing has happened. Certainly the hostage situation complicates things. You know, it takes time to negotiate the release of these people. Israel also wants time to take out as much of Hamas's underground tunnel system as possible. And to that end, Israel's been pounding Gaza with airstrikes, 400 airstrikes just overnight. And, the, you know, it, 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 more than eight, 5,800 people, pardon me, 
About 5,800 Palestinian civilians have been killed so far, and many of them children, um, and more than a million people displaced. But, you know, the other factor delaying an incursion um, are splits within the government about when to go in. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been Israel's longest-serving leader, but he's never initiated an act of war. But he has hard-line right members in his government who are pushing him now to go in. I think the other final um, factor is the U.S. and other allies are urging Israel to go slow. And and why are they urging them to go slow? What are their concerns? Well, the concern is that Israel doesn't have a well-thought-out strategy, you know. This is going to involve urban warfare. Hamas has these underground network of tunnels, which is where they operate from. The U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been in regular contact with his counterparts here, sharing with them the experiences and the challenge that the U.S. went through conducting urban warfare in Iraq. The thing is, they want them to really think hard before going in what the end game is in Gaza. That's NPR's Jackie Northam in Jerusalem. Jackie, thank you. Thank you. Yesterday, eight House Republicans made their case to be the latest speaker nominee. Today, there will be a secret ballot on all those nominees. Lowest vote getter out of the eight candidates will be out until one is left standing for a floor vote. For more on this, I'm joined now by Republican Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. Congressman, what can you tell us about that process yesterday? How do the candidates make their case that they should be speaker? Well, there was a candidate forum, and obviously with eight candidates, it was a little messy. Uh, they were not allowed to give, you know, long-form answers. That was just the, the nature of the format. But I, I do think each of them seemed to understand the gravity of the situation. This has been a mess. We're in the fourth week without a speaker. These are not political games. This is actually a government that needs to be run. Uh, I think they understand that we have uh, an ally at war. We have a southern border in crisis. And we are uh, we have a government shutdown looming in just a few weeks. They all seem to get the fact that real leadership is needed now. You said it's a mess. Is it uh, also embarrassing for the Republican Party right now? It is. Uh, it is not the kind of thing any of us should aspire to. I would say that. Uh, I continue to be pretty frustrated uh, with the eight hardliners that joined with the Democrats originally four weeks ago to kick Kevin McCarthy out of office. We're in kind of an environment where we just, it's like anything goes in politics and anything we can do to kick down somebody else's sandcastle generally is considered fair game. Uh, it's unfortunate. I, I think we need a return to norms. We need the big boys and the big girls to remind everybody that this is not a reality TV show. There are 350 million Americans and billions across the globe that have become accustomed to a certain maturity and responsibility from this country. And we are squandering that reputation, that goodwill, and that strength. Speaking of Kevin McCarthy, I remember uh, a while back, uh, January, I think, is when you spoke to my colleague Steve Inskeep. Uh, that's when Kevin McCarthy was running for speaker. And you said back then that no one else was qualified. Is someone else qualified now for, for you? I mean, no disrespect to the eight candidates who are running, but they have uh, shoes that are, that are too big to fill right now. That's not to say that any of them would be a failure. I think they're all very capable in their own way. But Kevin McCarthy really had uh, an emotional intelligence that allowed us to keep this train on the tracks for nine months. And in fact, 
there were a lot more legislative packages passed out of the Republican House that mo than most people thought could have been possible when we started so chaotically nine months ago. Whoever else, uh, whoever wins this thing is going to have a very steep learning curve. And I think there are some messy times ahead. Are you open to working with Democrats to elect a speaker? I would say that there is less goodwill between Republicans and Democrats in the House right now at this moment than any point in the five years I've been in the House. I've certainly uh, worked with Democrats uh, to pass a number of important legislative packages uh, and obviously just the, the very nature of divided government. We have a, a, mm -hmm. a Democratic Senate and a Republican House. That literally means you cannot pass any legislation without votes from both sides of the aisle. So, of course, I'm willing to work with Democrats. I, there is still a high level of frustration that uh, the 208 Democrats worked or basically gave the ammunition that the eight hardliners needed to put us into this chaos four weeks ago. Uh, but, but it, it was going to be a little while before those. Yeah. What's that? It, it was still on your party, though. You're in control. So <laughs> I've heard other Republicans want to kind of involve the Democrats in, in this mess. Um, no, but hey, let's be clear about this. I think there are two questions. One question is, has this chaos served America? The answer to that is clearly no. America's best interests have not been served. The second question is, could the Democrats have avoided this? And the answer to that is yes. And so I will not excuse somebody injuring our country just because of blind partisanship. But if Republicans had all united behind one speaker and voted, it, this wouldn't have happened. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, will, I will share the, the bulk of my frustration for the eight hardliners you know, on the Republican side who are clearly chaos agents. But their irresponsibility will not paper over the fact that Democrats aided and abetted this four weeks of chaos. All right. That is Republican Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. Congressman, thank you very much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks. A new report from the American Academy of Pediatrics, or AAP, warns that beverages marked as toddler formulas are not necessary, and they're not often as healthy as they claim to be. Here's NPR's Maria Godoy. Toddler formulas, or toddler milks, are drinks and powdered mixes targeted for young children from six months to three years of age. These products have been around for many years now, but sales and advertising have jumped in recent years. Pediatrician George Fuchs of the University of Kentucky is the lead author of the new report. He says toddler milks are often marketed as transitional or next-stage formulas for growing infants and toddlers. Suggesting or implying that there's this formula continuum from birth to age three, I think that is, to me, misleading. That's because unlike infant formulas, Toddler formulas or toddler milks are not designed to meet all of a child's nutritional needs in the first year of life. The infant formula is regulated by the FDA. They have to review and approve all infant formulas sold in the United States. That's not the case for the toddler drinks. They're entirely unregulated. He says the marketing around toddler milks often touts added nutrients to boost brain development or support a healthy immune system. And that can lead parents to mistakenly believe that these products offer more nutrition than either breast milk or cow's milk. Fuchs says that's not the case. So the net effect was certainly one that conveyed a, a wrong impression by parents and, and probably healthcare providers as well. 
In fact, the AAP report notes that many of these drinks contain added salt and sugar, and they have less protein than cow's milk. At the same time, Fuchs notes that toddler drinks tend to cost significantly more than cow's milk. So taking all the you know, negative attributes, I think, outweigh the positive attributes of those toddler drinks. Instead, pediatricians say babies should drink breast milk or infant formula until they're 12 months old. After that, cow's milk or breast milk is recommended, along with a varied, balanced diet of solid foods. Maria Godoy, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. You're starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, representatives for Hollywood studios and striking actors returned to the bargaining table today for the first time in two weeks in an effort to end their months-long impasse. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. Dr. Linda Vidon, Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. A high near 61 today under mostly sunny skies. It stays mostly clear tonight as temperatures temperatures fall to the low 50s. We warm up to a high near 72 tomorrow and clouds will move in throughout the day. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston. New York Times book critic Dwight Garner comes to City Space on Tuesday, November 7th. He'll be there to discuss his memoir, The Upstairs Delicatessen. Join us for a conversation about the joys of eating and reading. Tickets are available at WBUR events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Subaru, Subaru has donated more than $51 million to support the adoption, rescue, transport, and health of more than 420,000 animals. Learn more at Subaru.com slash pets. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Sammy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. For years, we've reported on the experiences of student loan borrowers, especially their struggles to navigate the bureaucracy of the federal student loan system. Today's story is about how some borrowers can stop struggling and save a whole lot of money. Nearly 4 million parents and caregivers have something called a Parent PLUS loan that they use to help their kids pay for college. NPR's Corey Turner reports on a little-known loophole that might bring these families some relief. Since this is a story about turning the tables, let's begin at the end. This is scary as hell. Carlos Sanchez is a 63-year-old father of three. He's on a Zoom call. So once you're on your studentaid.gov account, if you can share your... Going over his federal student loans with Carolina Rodriguez, a student loan counselor. Click view loan details. It's an awful big circle up there. I don't like it. That awful big circle is a pie chart of his debts, multiple Parent PLUS loans totaling $175,000. Carlos tells Carolina he's dreading his monthly payments. Just under $2,000 a month, and, and that just is extraordinary to me, and I'm not sure how I'm going to handle that. Then comes the good news. Carolina says there is a way to cut that monthly payment by a lot. But before we explain it, let's rewind to the very beginning, when Carlos's three children were still children. Happy birthday to you. Carlos and his wife knew they wanted their kids to be able to go to college. We thought we were getting ahead of the game. They live in Texas and signed up for a program that allowed them to prepay their kids' tuition to the University of Texas. Ultimately, their two sons graduated from UT Austin. One now works in cybersecurity. The other is a seventh grade science teacher. Carlos's daughter is nearly done at UT San Antonio. The problem, he says is their savings plan covered tuition, but not the enormous costs of room and board. And making matters worse, right around the time his oldest son started college. That was the year that I was laid off. Today, he's earning far less than he was a decade ago. And that's why, over the years, he took out these loans to be sure his children didn't run out of money in college. That's not a good feeling. I mean, I remember calling my mother uh, one time and asking, what does NSF mean? Non-sufficient funds. His rent check had bounced. She just freaked out. <laughs> there was like an all hands on deck with my family to, to raise the rent money. Carlos and his wife decided that was not going to happen to their kids. So they wound up with those $175,000 in Parent PLUS loans. I view it as the crisis within the larger crisis. Carolina Rodriguez is officially the director of the Education Debt Consumer Assistance Program in New York. Research shows Carlos's story is a common one, especially among low- and middle-income families of color, who are less likely than white families to have generational wealth to fall back on. I'm very worried. The panic is real. After a recent panel on student loan debt among black borrowers, Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley said Parent PLUS loans offer families a painful choice. And I've spoken to black parents who say, I'm of age to retire, I cannot retire, mm -hmm. because I'm still paying on loans that I took out so my baby could have a better life. A big part of the problem with Parent PLUS loans, the interest rate. 
it isn't just high, it's the highest interest rate the federal government allows right now for this year. It's 8.05%. And then there's the repayment plans. Maybe you've heard of the new save plan. The less you make each month, the less you owe. It also protects borrowers from ballooning interest. The problem is the save plan is closed to parent plus borrowers. In spite of all this, Carlos Sanchez does not regret helping his kids. My wife and I said it repeatedly, it's the best investment we ever made. And despite this massive debt, it's still the best investment. Sorry. You don't have to apologize. It's a lot. But your kids have college degrees, or two of the three do. <laughs> and that third one's going to get it, damn it. <laughs> and this scroll down brings us full circle to that Zoom call. Click okay. on the direct loan consolidation. Where Carolina Rodriguez tells Carlos Sanchez that there might be help okay. for him after all. So we're going to split the loans. Okay. And that's because there is a loophole that could help Carlos get into the save plan. And that could drop his monthly payment from just under $1,900 to save is $549. <laughs> A world of difference. And this is where I turn on the waterworks. The education department and its loan servicers won't discuss this loophole with borrowers, and they say they're closing it, but not until 2025. In the meantime, Carolina Rodriguez says using the loophole is not gaming the system. It's helping it by making sure that borrowers like Carlos Sanchez can afford to keep paying their loans. The way we're going to do this is we're going to do two paper consolidation applications. We're going to send them out to two different servicers. Squeezing through this loophole requires Carlos to consolidate his Parent PLUS loans twice. I'm going to put together the two applications. If you want to really get into the details, you can find them at npr.org slash student loans. Right now, though, all you need to know is that after that second consolidation, the system can no longer tell that his newly consolidated loan was once a bunch of Parent PLUS loans. And that accidentally opens the door to the save plan, the one that could save Carlos Sanchez $1,200 a month. Do you have any questions for me at this point? No, I just want to say God bless you. Oh, um, let's see it through and then we can celebrate. Once we get you safe, we'll celebrate a little. That will take several months of paperwork as well as a little luck. The irony of all of this is that the complexity of the student loan system has often in years past made it hard for borrowers to get the help they need. With this loophole though, they are finally finding some relief buried in the bureaucracy. Corey Turner, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We'll tell you about the infection that's rapidly killing beech trees in Massachusetts and how researchers are working to stop it. It's 829. Road trips this fall mean you've got time to listen. Catch your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live or rewind and play them back with the WBUR app. Download it for free before you hit the road. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the University of New England in Maine. With a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet, une.edu. And Music Worcester, 
presenting Grammy-winning mandolinist, composer, and singer Chris Thiele with the Knights Orchestra at Mechanics Hall, October 27th. MusicWorcester.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Hamas has released two more hostages, both elderly women, ahead of an expected Israeli ground assault in Gaza. One of them is 85-year-old Yokoved Lifshitz, whose daughter Sharon interpreted in English how her mother was feeling about the two being set free. Our heart is with our friends and brothers and mothers and sisters that are still waiting. Israel says Hamas still holds about 220 hostages, including some Americans, following the October 7th attack in southern Israel. It left more than 1,400 Israelis dead. The Palestinian Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas, says more than 5,700 people have been killed by subsequent Israeli airstrikes. Republicans in the House will try again today to nominate someone to replace the ousted Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. NPR's Susan Davis says GOP lawmakers will meet behind closed doors to choose from among eight candidates. Each candidate will have a fellow lawmaker give a nominating speech, and then they start voting behind closed doors. Republican conference rules say the candidate with the least votes will drop off the subsequent ballot, and they just keep doing this until someone wins a majority of the conference. If no one drops out along the way, this could take eight or nine rounds of voting, so it could be a very long day. This is NPR News. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Most Massachusetts residents believe the federal government is largely responsible for the state's migrant and shelter crisis. That's according to a new poll by UMass Amherst and WCVB. A majority of respondents also support the state's right-to-shelter law. This month, state officials announced Massachusetts would reach its family shelter capacity, driven in part by newly arriving migrants. Meanwhile, the head of Boston's archdiocese is calling on local parishes to help migrant families arriving to the state. Cardinal Sean O'Malley told church leaders they should be ready to help the new immigrants as winter nears. He says it's important they do so, quote, before the need becomes overwhelming. In a letter reviewed by the Boston Globe, O'Malley says the diocese is working with the Healy administration to address the influx of migrants. The UMass Amherst Marching Band is celebrating its recent selection to perform in the 2024 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City. The Minuteman Marching Band's announcement coincides with the 150th anniversary of the band's founding. Band director Tim Anderson explains why they were chosen out of more than 100 applicants from colleges and high schools across the country. The kids just look like they're having fun. And I, so I think that that palpable sense of joy is what people respond to about this band. And I think probably that's what the Macy's uh, parade committee looked at and picked up on. This will be the Minuteman Marching Band's second time performing in the parade, the first being in 2013. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. The undefeated Boston Bruins will be in Chicago tonight. They play the Blackhawks at 8. 30. Mostly sunny today. Temperatures will rise to the low 60s. Those fall to around 50 tonight and skies stay mostly clear. Highs in the low 70s tomorrow and it'll grow partly overcast. Right now it's 45 degrees in
in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm May Martinez in Culver City, California. The bond market may not get as much attention as a stock market, but a steep sell-off is underway. Governments issue bonds to raise money for public services and projects, and the United States needs to borrow extensively for a variety of reasons. Bond yields have risen recently, and that threatens to have a big impact on the economy and what people pay to borrow money. NPR's David Gura joins us now to explain what's driving yields higher and what it means for you and me, David. So why does the bond market matter? Well, you know, Ace, so many of us have bonds in our retirement portfolios. So if bond prices go down, our accounts are going to take a hit. No one likes to see that. But beyond that, the interest we pay on so much of what we buy is tied to yields on longer-term treasuries, on these U.S. government bonds that mature in two years or 10 years. So higher yields affect credit cards. They affect car loans and home mortgages. They affect businesses that borrow money to grow. Of course, they affect the government, which issues this debt. It also has to pay higher rates, which means it costs us taxpayers more money and adds to the deficit. All right. So what's behind the bond market sell-off? Well, first and foremost, it's due to the resilience of the U.S. economy. And as I say that, I realize you may be thinking, hey, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing. But you have to keep in mind we have been through this stretch of high inflation And the Fed Reserve has been hiking interest rates aggressively to lower that rate of inflation. It's been trying to slow down the U.S. economy. But when you look at the economic data recently, A, there are signs policymakers are not making enough progress. Katie Nixon is the chief investment officer at Northern Trust Wealth Management. My goodness, we've had continuous and surprising resilience in the labor market, surprising resilience in consumer spending. So I think growth has surprised on the upside, too. Now, Wall Street doesn't expect the Fed is going to raise interest rates again at its meeting next week, but investors do expect the Fed will keep interest rates higher for longer. This is a phrase I hear all the time now covering Wall Street. And what it means is the Fed is not going to feel comfortable enough to reduce interest rates until there are more signs the economy is cooling, A, and inflation is coming down closer to its target of about 2%. So, I mean, how bad are things in the bond market? You know, it's it's been pretty bad. And this sell-off comes after a pretty miserable year. 2022 is one of the worst years on record for bonds. And right now, things are not looking much better. We just hit this big milestone. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note, which is a key benchmark, just topped 5%, which is something we haven't seen since the summer of 2007, back when George W. Bush was the president and Ben Bernanke was the Fed chair. With bonds, when yields go up, as they have, prices go down. And here's how John Canavan describes what we've seen lately. He's the lead analyst at Oxford Economics. It has been uh, tremendously bad 
sell-off. It has been historically one of the worst sell-offs we've ever seen. Now, other factors are behind it, and a big one is growing concern about the government's finances. The U.S. just reported its budget deficit ballooned over the past year, and there's concern as Washington continues to spend a lot of money at a time when tax revenues are down. So this doesn't sound great, David. I mean, what's the outlook for the bond market then? Yeah, things are looking pretty rough, and there's no indication that's going to change anytime soon. But, you know, U.S. government bonds are seen as some of the least risky investments in the world, and that is especially true when there is global turmoil. Right now, of course, there are two big conflicts, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war between Israel and Hamas. We could see investors flock to U.S. Treasuries once again, and if that does happen, yields would fall A and prices would go up. NPR's David Gura. David, thanks for explaining this. Thank you. Hollywood performers and studios are going to be back at the bargaining table today, talking for a third time, trying to negotiate a new contract. Members of the union sag after have been on strike for more than 100 days. Meanwhile, Hollywood productions have been on pause since the screenwriters went on strike in May. The Writers Guild of America finally reached a deal. Now the actors are waiting in the wings. NPR culture correspondent Mandalita El Barco joins us now from Los Angeles to talk about it. Uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, the studios broke off talks. Why did they do that? and what's different now? Yeah, well, when the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers walked out of negotiations, they said it was because SAG-AFTRA was asking the streaming companies to share the wealth by paying performers 57 cents per subscriber every year. Here's union president Fran Drescher on Instagram last week. We have cracked the code on something. We have identified what the flaw is in this streaming model with regards to compensation. It may not be easy, it may not be what they want, but it is an elegant way to solve the problem. So Drescher even admits it may not be what the studios want. I take it they don't like it. No, they don't. The AMPTP said it would cost too much. Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos is one of the negotiators. He told Bloomberg TV they offered the actors a deal similar to the one they made with screenwriters in the WGA to give bonus residuals based on the success of a show or film. I know that all these guilds are not created equal and they all have different needs. But like I said, that is a one that worked, that rewarded success, which we agreed with. But uh, a, a levy on top of our revenue or per subscriber just felt like a bridge too far to add uh, this deep into the negotiation. Sarandos now says he's optimistic about starting up negotiations again. Well, at least he's optimistic. Anyone else optimistic? Well, you know, it's it's true. The longer this goes on, the more pressure there is to make a deal. And even though the screenwriters are now back at work, nothing can be shot or filmed without the actors. Yesterday, I went to a few picket lines to talk to strikers to see if they were optimistic. Outside of Sony and Culver City, I met strike captain Andrea Casimos. Here's what she said. Everybody's a little bit on edge and a little worried in terms of like how, how much longer are we going to be here, you know, and what's so disheartening about it is that what we're really asking for is living wages. People think of like the millionaire actors who make all this money acting and the reality is our members are not usually that. It's, it's really hard to get your insurance minimum, which is like a little over $26,000 a year. And so it's really hard when you have CEOs who are making millions and millions and millions of dollars telling us it's too expensive. Now, A, we should mention that many of us here at NPR are members of SAG-AFTRA, although we're under a different contract and we're not on strike. And now I guess uh, some A-listers, Mandalit, are trying to take a home run cut and try to end this. Yeah, the, you know, the union shot down uh, a rescue plan 
last week by George Clooney and some other A-list actors like Scarlett Johansson, Ben Affleck, Tyler Perry, Emma Stone. The high-paying actors offered to pay $150 million in union dues for the other members' benefits. SAG after leaders said thanks, but that has nothing to do with their demands in the contract. Well, also last week, the union issued Halloween guidelines. They suggested members not wear costumes based on struck shows and movies like Barbie or Wednesday Adams. That sparked some online backlash, including from a former union president and Little House on the Prairie actress Melissa Gilbert. She called the guidelines infantile and silly, and she tweeted, quote, We look like a joke. Please tell me you're going to make this rule go away and go negotiate. Well, negotiate is what they're planning to do again today. All right, NPR's Manalit Del Barco. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report has news of 130 companies who've signed a letter saying they're already dealing with the rising costs of climate change and urging world leaders to ditch fossil fuels. More sun than clouds today in the low 60s, tonight low 50s with clear skies. Clouds move in throughout the day tomorrow. We'll also have a warm-up to the low 70s. Right now it's 46 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, and a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit, the Pulitzer Prize-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music. Coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever from November 10th through December 10th at the Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. A new report finds that the Massachusetts Convention Center Authority is falling short in its diversity and inclusion efforts. The report commissioned by the MCCA comes after employees from the agency reported racial discrimination. The agency tells the Boston Globe it plans to create a task force to better enforce diversity and inclusion efforts. TD Bank plans to open its first branch in Roxbury. The move will be the company's first step in filling its gap in Boston's communities of color. The company tells the Boston Business Journal the Roxbury branch will also include financial health resources and space for nonprofits. TD is the state's fourth largest bank. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com and MITSloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Over the last few years, a new tree disease has been spreading in Massachusetts forests. Beech leaf disease has appeared in over 90 communities. There's no treatment, and conservationists are trying to buy time by keeping trees healthy. As WBUR's Palomona reports, it's one more challenge to trees already facing stressors caused by climate change. Ready to go? Let's go. In a corner of the Middlesex Fells in Winchester, a group of six women set off on a woodsy trail for their weekly survey of local plants and wildlife. They walk around Long Pond and stop near a beech tree with a smooth gray trunk and green canopy. Claire O'Neill is with Earthwise Aware, a group of conservation volunteers. She looks up at the sunlit leaves. 
when you stand underneath a tree with the reflection of the light going through the leaf, you can see these kind of little rectangular patches of very dark color. This is, you know, what is a sign of the leaf disease. O'Neill and her group upload information about trees infected with beech leaf disease to the website iNaturalist. Websites like this and other citizen science reporting tools can serve as a starting point for the state's forest health program to monitor the spread of the disease. In this side of the fells, it has been affected a little bit less than in the Greenwood area. Beech leaf disease was first identified in Massachusetts in 2020. It's caused by a microscopic nematode that may be spread by birds, insects and wind. The infection causes leaves to fall off and can eventually starve the tree. Once a tree is infected, it could die within a few years. The disease is spreading fast across the state. Nicole Kelleher is the director of the Forest Health Program with the Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation. She says the infection reached the southeast shore first. The areas we've seen in 2020 where we first identified the disease, we're seeing a significant amount of decline and occasional occurrences of tree death. The American beech is native to the eastern U.S. The U.S. Forest Service estimates it represents 10% of forests in Massachusetts. They are also common in streets, parks, and cemeteries. The trees provide habitat and food for many animals. The beech leaf disease was first found in the U.S. in Ohio in 2012 and has spread to over a dozen states. In the world of forestry, that's still quite new. In fact, it took five years just to confirm that the infection was caused by a nematode. And researchers say finding treatments will take more time. It's totally new for everyone in this field. There is a lot of work going into investigating different chemicals and and methods and methodologies, but it's a slow process. The most promising treatment so far comes from a chemical typically used as a fertilizer, says Robert Mara, a forest pathologist with the state of Connecticut. In very simple terms, it is believed that it stimulates the plant's defenses. It's also low-cost and non-toxic. Mara says researchers in Ohio have strong evidence it helps trees live and thrive with the infection. But results haven't been published yet. And some trees are already surviving on their own after being infected. We see trees that are surrounded by trees that are succumbing rather dramatically to the disease. And these few trees have few symptoms. Researchers in Ohio are studying these seemingly resistant trees in hopes that they could breed them and use them in reforestation. But it's too early to say if these trees are actually resistant. Massachusetts forest officials say there isn't enough evidence to adopt any treatments yet. So there's not any official approved treatments at this time. And beech trees also face other threats in the U.S., which may make them more vulnerable to the leaf disease. For almost a century, the trees have suffered from beech bark disease, a combination of insect and fungus attacks on the tree trunk. This infection spread all over Massachusetts and wiped out most large beech trees in the forest. And then there's climate change. Beech trees have in general been more resilient to heat and drought 
compared to other trees in the Northeast, says Pamela Templer, a professor at Boston University. A really important thing to understand is how climate change might be making these trees vulnerable to this pest, but I think it's too early to say. For now, the main recommendation is to keep beech trees healthy so they are strong enough to fight the disease. For 9.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Muda. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have comments by one of the elderly Israeli women freed by Hamas. She says she was held in a spider's web of tunnels beneath Gaza. And they'll have the latest on a 158-car pileup caused by super fog in New Orleans that killed at least seven people. It's 8:50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert, research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. BrighamandWomens.org. A beloved piece of playground equipment turns 100 years old. We go to Winnetka, Illinois to pay tribute. You can't see it from the street. You'd have to know it was here and walk in through our little back gate so it's a little bit of a hidden treasure. I'm looking at the 100-year-old jungle gym. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Hamas has released two more hostages as Israel ramps up airstrikes on Gaza. United Auto Workers are expanding their strike as their standoff with car makers enters a seventh week. And former Trump ally Michael Cohen is set to testify today against his old boss in Donald Trump's New York fraud trial. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella Power View Shades for Homes and Offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. Two companies that together account for around 10% of the S&P 500 index will reveal quarterly results today. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Betterment, the automated investing platform that helps make it easy to be invested for the long term. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. I'm David Brancaccio. The two heavyweight tech companies with profits due today are Microsoft and Alphabet Google. Big tech firms overall are expected to have done quite well in the summer into fall quarter. Marketplace's Nova Safo is following this. Just a few months ago, forecasters expected the information technology sector to show earnings growth of less than half a percent during the third quarter. That's according to FactSet. Since then, the data firm says expectations have improved dramatically, fueled by the promise of artificial intelligence and a resilient economy. But while revenue is expected to be strong overall, it won't necessarily mean robust profits across the board. At Alphabet, analysts are looking for continued growth in its cloud services unit and for continued ad sales momentum at Google, something the company reported in its previous quarter. 
Microsoft has benefited from the anticipation of a generative AI boom. It's also spending aggressively on the technology. Capital expenditures totaled nearly $11 billion in the quarter ending in June. The company has warned that it will take several more quarters until its investments bear fruit. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. A couple of generals reporting quarterly results this morning. General Electric beat expectations and raised its guidance for the road ahead. GE stock up 5.8% now pre-market. The other General Motors profits beat expectations, but were down more than 7% from a year earlier. And the company is giving up on future guidance given the United Auto Workers strike. GM stock is up 1.3% pre-market. Here's Megan McCarty-Carino with some background. Only two weeks of the strike were in the third quarter, says analyst David Whiston at Morningstar. So because of that, the Q3 numbers may not be that bad. It's the forecast for the rest of the year that's the issue, says economist Ned Hill at The Ohio State University. This really is like a game of, I don't know if it's Jenga or Rubik's Cube. If it goes on long enough, the strike could eventually cut into sales, and it's likely the resulting contract will raise labor costs. The UAW is pushing for wage increases, and they can use healthy profits as leverage, says Michelle Kaminsky, a professor of labor relations at Michigan State. They're saying, we helped you earn this money, and we believe we deserve a share of it. The union is also demanding new EV battery plants be unionized. Ford recently paused construction of one in Michigan, and GM said it will delay production of an electric pickup over uncertainty about the EV market. I'm Megan McCarty-Carino for Marketplace. The Anderson Economic Group based in Michigan has a new estimate on losses in the strike so far, $9.6 billion. S&P futures are up six-tenths percent now. NASDAQ futures up seven-tenths percent, about a half hour here before the stock markets open officially. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on. That's why Schwab has financial consultants ready to serve their clients, plus professional answers and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. The annual Future Investment Initiative, informally known as Davos of the Desert, gets underway today in Saudi Arabia. This is an investment-focused, warmer climate version of the economic forum in the Swiss ski resort of Davos. Financial titans like Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase, Jane Fraser of Citigroup, and Larry Fink of BlackRock are expected in Riyadh. The big draw is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia and his proximity to his gargantuan government wealth fund. For a preview, let's connect to Samir Hashmi, Middle East business correspondent for our newsroom partners at the BBC. Hi, Samir. Hi there. How are you doing? So give us some context for this event. It's a biggie for the financiers. So basically, this event or conference was started by Saudi Arabia about seven years ago. And it is their flagship investors summit where basically they use this event as an opportunity to pitch Saudi Arabia as a destination for investment. Now, this is basically one of the core programs 
of Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030. Now, this is basically a program that was launched by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's the de facto ruler of the country, where the government is trying to diversify the economy away from fossil fuels because Saudi Arabia generates more than 40% of its income from oil exports. Yeah, and really at the center of this is that huge pot of gold, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. I mean, if you talk about the Wall Street, a lot of companies, bankers, financiers have their eye on Saudi Arabia because at the moment they are spending billions of dollars every year to attract investments, to set up new companies across different sectors. And it's also the other way around. The Saudis have uh, the PIF has invested a lot in international firms and the security markets. We've seen that with the U.S. The Saudis have invested in a plethora of companies there, including Lucid, where they've increased their stake recently. The Saudis directly hold a lot of securities in the U.S. markets, which they have been increasing over the last few years. And despite the rising tensions in the Middle East and around the world with the Israel-Hamas war, a lot of people are still going to show up at this thing. Uh, yes. I mean, so far, there haven't been major cancellations, according to the FII, which is, uh, you know, organizing this event. But of course, I think the big question during the summit is going to be the impact this war can have on the region and specifically Saudi Arabia, because famously during the second edition of this event a few years ago, he had said that Saudi Arabia is the new Europe. And uh, this is going to be the place to invest and not only Saudi Arabia, but the region. But of course, now we have seen uh, this outbreak of this war between Israel and Hamas. There are concerns that it could, this could spread to other parts of the region. And if that happens, how is that going to impact the economic climate in the region and also the investment opportunities? Always good to check in with the BBC's Middle East business correspondent, Samir Hashmi. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. In 2018, some would-be attendees boycotted this investment conference given the killing of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi by agents of the Saudi government. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. It's going to be mostly sunny today and in the low 60s. Tonight, skies stay mostly clear. Temperatures will fall to the low 50s. Tomorrow, it'll slowly grow mostly cloudy. But on the upside, we're supposed to warm back up to the low 70s. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston. The BBC NewsHour is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Antiquarian Book Fair. Rare books, maps, and prints at the Heinz this Friday through Sunday. Special guest speakers all weekend bostonbookfair.com and Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Our names reveal so much of ourselves, cultural roots, tradition, even power. So learning to pronounce a name correctly matters. Ofa yeah. Kibaha Tupo Malohi. Yep, just like that. And that's it's very it's beautiful. actually very phonetic. It is, and it's it's very melodic. The new children's book, Say My Name, next time here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.